Barnacles podcast, where we discuss all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. I'm Kelly, and this is the 40th episode of Blooms and Barnacles. We've got a new post on the Blooms and Barnacles blog. You can find that at bloomsandbarnacles.com. It's called In the Jakes with Mr. Bloom. Dermot, tell us a little bit about that post. You just read it. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, Mr. Bloom seems to enjoy his time on the uh, on the privy and uh, seems to like s- stretching out the process for as long as he can for some reason. Mm-hmm. Was he reading at the time as well? He was reading from titbits. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so I had the challenge then of uh, what to draw. Well, is the post just about him taking a poo? No, uh, f- you went all Freudian on it. Yeah. Yeah, you analyzed it very mm-hmm. thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm analyzing the thing you just said now. Mm, fine. Oh, God. Anyway. So, yeah, no, and uh, basically the idea that Bloom is uh, anally retentive. And, uh, you know, and then you're asked to draw a cartoon of that. So <laughs> it's kind of problematic. What cause... did you draw? Uh, well, we were when we were back in Dublin, we were in the National Museum. Mm-hmm. And that's where one of the scenes from Ulysses is set where Bloom walks in and studies the female nudes to see if they have, or the statues to see if they have bum holes. Yes. And I thought, that now there's a cartoon if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, I used that instead of a, a man squatting on the toilet because <laughs> I, I have taste and I'm a man of yes. high class. And so I did, I did a, a cartoon of the sun shining out of the, the bum of the female yes. statue. So, into, somebody on Facebook asks about asked about this today. Well, this is a, one of my favorite little scenes in Ulysses. I think it's the idea of Bloom going to the museum to see if the Greek goddesses have beeholes is amusing to me. And it's one scene that as we progress through the book, I don't know if we'll write about more than we did right now because it's mm. kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. And so we discussed some different ideas for what the image would be on this. And I like having this kind of comedic little scene uh, depicted. So I really enjoy this image. I am super worried that it's going to get pulled from Facebook for um, inappropriate content. (laughs) So see it while you can, because it will remain on our website forever. It's one of those things, too, that if people do a Google image search, They'll, they'll, they'll do an image search for Ulysses and they'll see this thing and go, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. And then they have then they hopefully will click on it. So I really it's... feel like we're, we're doing a, a service to our readers and to the posterity of Ulysses by doing funny pictures to go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we don't we never want to be too holy on our, our website. No, no, so And speaking of describing visual images on a purely audio medium, let's talk about the image that uh, accompanies our, uh, post for today, or our episode for today. And if you want to see these, you can. They're all available at our website in the previous post or in the show notes for episode 40, Bloomish, which you're listening to right now. And Dermot did some artwork to go with that one too, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this was a tricky one too, because uh, it's, uh, well, Stephen getting the telegram, mother dying come home, father, or another dying, depending on what edition you're reading. And I thought, you know, it's kind of sad, but you want to do something a little descriptive about it. Or I like to do like little puzzles in them. So I had like the, the telegram and a little thin ribbon, a green ribbon, because that was the, not the color theme of the mm-hmm. that chapter. 
and it's wrapping around his wrists like it's chaining him back to the motherland. And if you look at it carefully, it's got dots and dashes on it in Morse code. And that's actually Morse code. I did a Morse code translator online mm -hmm. and I used the actual dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, dot, dot that actually spells out. So if you know Morse code, you should be able to hopefully read it reasonably well. Cool. Yeah, if any of our listeners read Morse code, uh, let Dermot know how he did. Oh, or the, uh, the the website that I put the text into. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can send your emails to them. Yeah. Great. And once more, if you want to see any or all of this artwork, you can find it at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Bloomsandbarnacles.com. We have another little note here. I'm guessing that like us, everyone who is listening to this podcast is a bibliophile, a lover of books. Because we're in a time period right now where it's hard to get out of the house to go hang out at your local bookstore or shop there, it can be a very, like many businesses, a very d difficult time financially. We got some pretty shocking news recently in, in Portland, Oregon, where we live, that our local Powell's bookstore might not be able to come back after all the shutdown that's going on right now. But the happy ending to that was... Portlanders heard this and bought a bunch of books online from them. I did. I bought a copy of Ulysses on the Liffey by Richard Elman that I'm really looking forward to reading from them. And it was enough not only for them to stay afloat, but to rehire some of the workers that they had laid off. So this is just a little call to action from us. It, if you're stuck at home right now and you have the funds to do it, order something online from your local bookstore. It will really make a difference to them and... We want to live in a, a world where there are still bookstores after everyone's healthy again. Yeah, I'm keeping more jobs locally and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And Amazon doesn't need your money, though. They do. Yeah, don't order from Amazon. Order from your local. It's actually, you know what? It's a good habit to have even when this thing blows over. Mm -hmm. to, to, and it's a mea culpa. I've bought a lot of books on Amazon, usually when I can't get them at Powell's. And, okay. you know, and you know what? I will when this blows over and there's no strike mm -hmm. on or anything. And if I can't find a book anywhere else, sure, I'll buy it from them. But uh, if there's any other source, I would really, really get in the habit of using that other source. And next, we would like to read an email we received recently. This was from friend of the show, Steve Carey in Melbourne, Australia. And he wrote us an email about one of our more recent blog posts and also with a correction. So Dermot's going to read that for us. Hi Kelly, love the latest blog on Agendath in the time, really illuminating. Tiny thing, on your website Dermot's bio says he's trying to dissuade you from reading Finnegan's Wake and it's spelled Finnegan's with an apostrophe and he writes, ouch. I do hope you're both finding your efforts on B&B &B rewarding even if not financially. You're doing such great work, please, please, please keep it up and don't die halfway through like Frank Delaney. <laughs> We will try. Cheers, Steve. All right. All right. So, thank, thank you, Steve. You, thank you, Steve. <laughs> um, so I did go in and take out the apostrophe. So you found the Easter egg that I purposely put on our so blog. It's a test and you <laughs> passed the tests and everyone else failed. So, yep. If you correct us, we might change some small punctuation error on our website. Mm. Anyway, it's always great to hear from Steve. If you have something to say to us, go ahead and read us an email. And if it makes Dermot laugh, we'll read it on, on the podcast. <laughs> okay, well, we've got plenty to talk about today. This is a bit longer piece of text from Proteus, pages 41 to 42 in my edition, which is the 1991 Vintage International Edition. 
Dermot's going to read this multi-paragraph passage, and then we'll talk about it. My Latin quarter hat. God, we simply must dress the character. I want puce gloves. You were a student, weren't you? Of what in the other devil's name? Pacean, PCN, you know, physiques, chimiques et natural. Aha, eating your groats worth of muon sive, flesh pots of Egypt, elbowed by belching cabmen. Just say in the most natural tone, when I was in Paris, boulmish, I used to. Yes, used to carry punch tickets to prove an alibi if they arrested you for murder somewhere. Justice. On the night of the 17th of February 1904, the prisoner was seen by two witnesses. Other fellow did it. Other me. Hat, tie, overcoat, nose. Louis, c'est moi. You seem to have enjoyed yourself. Proudly walking. Whom were you trying to walk like? Forget. A dispossessed. With mother's money order, eight shillings, the banging door of the post office slammed in your face by the usher. Hunger, toothache. Encore du minuit. Look, clock. Must get. Ferme. Hire dog. Shoot him the bloody bits with a bang shotgun. Bits man. Spattered walls. All brass buttons. Bits all crack in place. Clack back. Not hurt? Oh, that's all right. Shake hands. See what I meant? See? Oh, that's all right. Shake a shake. Oh, that's all only all right. You were going to do wonders. What? Missionary to Europe after fiery Columbanus. Fiacre and Scotus on their creepy stools in heaven, spilt from their pint pots, loud Latin laughing. Yuga, Yuga, pretending to speak broken English as you dragged your valise, porter threepence, across the slimy pier at New Haven. Come on, rich booty you brought back, la tutu, five tattered numbers of pantalon blanc, a culot rouge, a blue French telegram, curiosity to show. Mother dying. Come home, father. The aunt thinks you killed your mother. That's why she won't. Then here's a health to Mulligan's aunt, and I'll tell you the reason why. She always kept things decent in the Hannigan family eye. Thank you so much, Dermot. Thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think if we hadn't gone over this kind of material before for one of the other blog essays, I'd be completely lost by a lot Mm -hmm. of that. Like, completely, hopelessly gobsmacked trying to pick pull out the meanings of it so i'll say up front like this isn't the first time that yeah. i've encountered the text but yeah I, I would i probably would have been able to figure out okay he's reminiscing about some time he spent in france and uh, seems to have made a bit of a arse of himself mm-hmm. and messed things up sounds like he's not happy with his his treasure that he brought back I'm guessing Le Tutu, five tattered numbers of Pantalon Blanc and Coulard Rouge and a Blue French Telegram is his trophy, which doesn't sound like a lot for kind of that time. Uh, he mentions Columbanus, Fiacre and Scotus. I've, I don't know who Fiacre is, but uh, Columbanus and Scotus would be two big Catholic uh, figures. Scotus has done Scotus, the philosopher. Um, and actually Duns Scotus is the origin of the word dunce, according to some etymologies. Oh. Not because he was a fool, but because his followers were very uh, intransigent about leaving Aristotelian philosophy behind in the 1700s, 17th century, the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And so they were called Duns men, and that became an insult. So mm-hmm. Duns Scotus, one of the most intelligent men who ever lived, his name has become an insult. So that's about it. A mother dying come home father is pretty bleak, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like a, you're paying telegrams by the word. 
So I'm guessing the weather letter or whatever. So I'm guessing that that was a pretty tight budget that they were on back home. Uh, yeah. So that's about as much as I've got. All right. Uh, shall we dive in? Yep. Okay. Back up to the top. My Latin quarter hat. God, we simply must dress the character. I want puce gloves. So we get to start out today by talking about fashion.、Mm. Let's talk about James Joyce's slash Stephen Dedalus's Parisian Bohemian style. So I think we've talked about before.、Um, James Joyce and Stephen Dedalus both briefly spent some time in Paris in the early twenties, and Ulysses takes place a few months after.、Mm, Maybe more than a few months after Stephen has returned from Paris in a dishonorable way,、uh, which we'll talk about today. Stephen's deepest desire was to become a Bohemian writer, like、um, these French poets that you know he, he kind of looked up to. Really, more so, he he wanted to be a continental European. Buck Mulligan wanted to Hellenize Ireland. Stephen Dedalus wanted to make it more European,、mm-hmm. so he went to Europe, and he picked up sort of a fashion-first method of transforming into this continental Bohemian writer, the "fake it till you make it" approach. So he's still kind of clinging to the style when he got back to Dublin. Can you remember back when we were talking about the boys in the tower having tea, and Stephen wanted to have lemon with his?、Right. Do you remember what Buck Mulligan said? Insulting him about being pretentious, was it? Yeah, and saying、yeah. no, we want good Sandy Cove milk. Right, like Irish yeah. boys. Yeah. yeah. When、uh, young James Joyce came back from France, he did kind of a similar thing. He was still clinging to that style when he got back to Dublin. It's a well-worn pattern for anyone who has studied abroad for a short period of time.、Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're American, you you may have had a friend.、Uh, I have who. Went to England and came back and、uh, started using a bunch of British slang、oh, and、no. maybe even a little trace of an accent.、Oh. I, for my part, when I was twenty, studied in Paris for a bit, and when I came back, all I wanted was French things and French food, and、mm. uh, really hard to find in Central Illinois, as it turns out. So, in <laughs> near Marseilles, Illinois. There's a picture of James Joyce in his Parisian getup that appeared, I believe, in in Richard first in Richard Elman's biography of him, and it's in the episode notes for this show. And Richard Elman, his biographer, described him as wearing a heavy, ill-fitting coat and a long-suffering look.、Mm. So we'll we'll discuss that photo momentarily. Uh, I want to touch on these puce gloves. I want puce gloves is a callback to Telemachus. We're gonna have a few of those today. Could you read that quote from Telemachus?、Sure. And putting on his stiff collar and rebellious tie, he spoke to them, chiding them, and to his dangling watch chain. His hands plunged and rummaged in his trunk while he called for a clean handkerchief. God, we'll simply have to dress the character. I want puce gloves and green boots. Contradiction. Do I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. Mercurial Malachi. A limp black missile flew out of his talking hands, and there's your Latin Quarter hat. He said. So this is from when the boys are kind of getting ready to walk down to the forty foot and bathe, and this is、uh, Buck Mulligan getting ready. And I remember there's a, a note that Joyce wrote in one of his notebooks saying that 
Oliver St. John Gogarty would always talk to inanimate objects, which was a, a tell of his uh, Celtic character. Uh-huh. You're seeing uh, life in inanimate things, right. I guess, is the, the Celtic character. But anyway, we see the I want puce gloves and the coinage of Latin Quarter hat, which Latin Quarter is a, a part of Paris. It's one of the few like medieval parts of the city left oh. because most of it was torn down by um, Baron Haussmann and the mid to late uh, 19th century. Yeah. And the Latin Quarter is notable because it still has these narrow little windy oh. streets. Oh, yeah. I, I, when I was a student there, I, I loved the Latin Quarter. Oh. The last time oh, I was yeah. there. I'm not a Spend fan of, of what's his face. Oh, Houseman? Houseman? Screw that guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm a medieval. Monsieur Osman? I, I like the medievals better. There is, we could record a whole series of podcasts on um, on Baron Houseman and the leveling of Paris in the 19th mm-hmm. century, yeah. but yeah. I, I will... There's a forum online somewhere where there's a bunch of medieval mm-hmm. Paris fans and they post what little bits are left. And, yeah, and... Uh, yeah. I mean, the Houseman Boulevards are really nice and the buildings are beautiful and uniform. And the the truth was, like, the medieval parts of the city were pretty fetid at that time. Yeah. On the other hand, he tore down a lot of, like, working people's, working yeah, class they, people's they, homes. They could have been retrofitted with plumbing. I think it was done for authoritarian reasons. Nice big. Yes, it was also made. done so they could move militaries through yes. the streets of Paris. A Germans and, 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 um, <laughs> so the boulevards were too wide that they couldn't tear up the, the paving stones and build barricades anymore. Right, right. So, cause right. It's very rude. The, the French yeah. uh, have had a lot of uh, revolutions, so, yeah. including the, the communards in the 1870s. Yeah. I believe. I so, yeah, so puce is a form of green, kind of a snot green, if you will. Green is the uh, corresponding color of Proteus. So Oliver St. John Gogarty, who is a real-life person who inspired Buck Mulligan, um, he said that his friend James Joyce came back from Paris trying to ape the style of French symbolist poet um, Arthur Rimbaud. There is a sketch of, of uh, Rimbaud by his friend Paul Verlaine, who's another poet. And if we look at it, so we, we have it up on our screen here. Mm-hmm. Dermot's going to scroll down yep. for me. But here's the one of... Now these, if you want to follow along at home, these are all in the show notes at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Uh, I realize that describing a visual image in a purely audio medium is not the best podcasting, but uh, it's impossible to do this without. So here's, here's James Joyce. Uh, come back from Paris. That... Looks, like, looks like he could be in the Matrix movie. <laughs> I was thinking he just looks really emo. <laughs> I think he looks like 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 '80s emo though, mm. like original. Like he he probably had some Joy Division albums. Mm, yes. But you can see his Latin Quarter hat there. And then this is uh, Arthur Rimbaud. Right. So that's the actual hat that Gogarty's making fun of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we also have I I found while reading a back issue of James Joyce Quarterly in an uh, an article by David M Earle entitled Green Eyes, I See You, Fang, I Feel You, The Symbol, symbol of Absinthe and Ulysses. Great read if, if you're interested in Ulysses and Absinthe. This is from, the, the third image there is from 1901, and it's a, a caricature of a, it says ensembleiste. Uh, it's a caricature of a, a symbolist poet. Hmm. People like um, Stéphane Mallarmé or these other poets, um, Rimbaud or Verlaine, that uh, Joyce actually really liked. Um, but you see he has the wide-brimmed hat, he has the long overcoat, and hmm. he's carrying um, an ash plant. 
Well, I don't know. I guess I don't know if it's an ash plant, but he has a walking stick, yeah, so yeah. it's close enough. So there is definitely a look from that time period, that like fantasy club Paris. Yeah. And Joyce is going for that look. Um, if you're drawing cartoons of them, there's clearly like a lot of these guys floating yeah. around. Let, let's go on to the next little fragment here. You were a student, weren't you? Of what in the other devil's name? PCN. 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 Uh, you know, physique, chimique, et naturel. Aha. So, PCN, what is this weird word? So, it's a fr French pronunciation of PCN, which stands for physique, chimique, et naturel, which are the sciences French medical students take. Physique, uh, physics, chemistry, and natural sciences or biology. So, okay. So let's talk about uh, Stephen slash Joyce's disastrous Parisian sojourn. Joyce showed up in Paris to study medicine. He had finished his undergraduate studies at University College Dublin, and he wanted to go on and get his medical degree. Now he could have done a medical degree at UCD, but. The problem was UCD wanted him to pay for medical school, and he didn't have the cash. They also denied him grinds or tutoring. He applied to be a tutor, basically, and they mm. turned him down. Now, they turned him down because he graduated from University College Dublin uh, by the skin of his teeth. He uh, was a not a very shall we say, avid students. He was much more focused on extracurricular activities by that point, and he got through by the skin of his teeth, as I said. So he decided Paris it was. So why Paris? That's a really good question. And uh, trying to answer it, we should look at a few things. So first of all, through his extracurricular activities as a young man in Dublin, Joyce had come into the acquaintance of sort of Dublin literary celebrities like William Butler Yeats or Lady Philippa Gregory, who saw a lot of promise in him as a writer and uh, were willing to call in favors to get Joyce a writing gig, probably for a newspaper in Dublin or London. Like these were very concrete offers. Like, right. there, there were people, and I think he did write some reviews and they were not what they were looking for. I think there was one paper in London in particular that basically just wanted him to write flattering things about the, the writers they liked and he just, just turn in like things that said like, oh, the this is the worst drivel I've ever seen. This is not fit for toilet paper. <laughs> and they, uh, they were not happy with him. So according to his biographer, Elman, uh, James Joyce had provisionally been accepted into the Ecole de Médecine at La Sorbonne. So he had been accepted into a, a medical school in Paris. And they were willing to take him on despite the fact that the term was weeks from ending in December. So it's December of 1901. Joyce sets sail for Paris. He makes sure his brother Stanislaus knows that if he should die, he's going to send all his uh, manuscripts of his po poems to all the great libraries of the world, including the Vatican. See our last episode if you mm -hmm. want to know what that's about. And when he got there, La Sorbonne did not recognize his um, United Kingdom medical oh, degree. Because they, like, they said, no, we need something from a French school. It, it makes sense. They also had this pesky policy of not allowing them, him to study until he paid his semester fees in advance, which still didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. Joyce learned all of this information upon arriving in Paris. And according to either Elman or his brother Stanislaus, who wrote a biography of James Joyce as well, 
I can't remember where this came from. It doesn't matter. He could have gotten all this info while he was still at Dublin. This is something he could have gotten through written correspondence or maybe even a a telephone call if that was available then. But no, he uh, spent his money that he didn't have going to Paris to have them say, non désolé. But he could have found like schools in in mainland Britain as well. Yes, he... Yes, absolutely. He could have gone to school in England. He could have gone in Ireland. He, yeah. yeah. But the the money was always a problem. His his family wasn't doing that great financially. Like if you recall, his father had a pretty big career downturn when he was young. He got pulled out of Clongo's Wood College and mm-hmm. made it through Belvedere on a scholarship. But he wasn't exactly working or earning any money at this point. And his relationship with his father. Uh, who was an abusive alcoholic, deteriorated pretty significantly over this time. Mm -hmm. So it gets worse after his mother dies. Uh, Another issue, too, is that what he would actually achieve going to Paris was pretty vague. So if we're still answering that, why Paris? It seems like his answer was probably, why not? It just raises more questions, like would a French medical degree be recognized in in the United Kingdom, of which Ireland was a part at that time? Right, right. Uh, would he remain on in France to practice medicine there? Did he plan on becoming a doctor in France? I mean, Joyce barely passed his sciences at UCD. I believe as Elman said, his French wasn't as good as he thought when he got there, and subjects like chemistry were just impossible in the yeah. second language. So the second option, while not insurmountable for a clever person like Joyce, probably was a, a bit difficult to achieve. Right. Despite all of these obvious pitfalls... Joyce remained in Paris. His brother Stanislaus said with, and I quote, with some undefined purpose, vaguely literary. And uh, I think basically Joyce wanted to be in Paris because that is where, you know, these kind of exciting bohemian writers were. And he wanted to be one of them. Consequences be damned. He'd Mm. make it work. Right. To be an artist, he needed... We were talking about him flying by the nets of Irish culture last time. Right. It's kind of... I think that's kind of his idea. Like, he's escaped. He's... uh, Ireland is the cause of all his problems. So if he's in Paris, that will solve a lot of his problems. And had he gone to London, he would have been just a patty. Yeah, Yeah, London wasn't far enough. He did... (laughs) Like, he did go to London for a bit. I believe on the way over to Paris, Yates insisted that he, like, stop by London and spend a few days there and he tried to convince Joyce to stay in London he's because he said you get way you know you get way more opportunities here yeah and then we'll talk about Maud gone in an upcoming episode I'm not sure how far out that discussion will be but Gates put him in touch with her and that was also like a big drama then because he uh, gave kind of gave her the middle finger too so yeah <laughs> Yeah, he was a a troubled young man, I guess. Okay, next section here. Eating your groats worth of Mouan Civet, flesh pots of Egypt, elbowed by belching cabmen. Kind of a nice little foreshadowing of Stephen in a cabin shelter much later in Ulysses. Mm. Just say in the most natural tone, when I was in Paris, boulmiche, I used to. So he's thinking about kind of the image he wants to project like oh yeah just you know say oh yeah when I was in Paris I used to do this you know mm-hmm. when we were down on the Boulmiche and the the Latin Quarter you know uh, but really what it actually looked like is that first part where he's uh, uh, a groat's worth is a groat is a very insignificant amount of money yep. 
to kind of elbow out of the way these belching cabmen as he goes to get his mouan civet. Uh, a civet is a type of stew, and mou means lung. So it's, a, I guess, a, a lung stew. Oh, God. I would guess it's some kind of stew where they throw in all the, the bits uh, of the animal that people awful. don't really mm. want to eat. Yeah, mm. like the lungs. <sighs> so he describes this as the flesh pots of Egypt. Uh, this is a reference to a section in Exodus 16.3 in the Old Testament. Go ahead and read that passage first, Dermot. And the children of Israel said unto them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's from the King James Version. If you look at versions of the Bible with more modern English, a flesh pot is usually like, it's called like a meat pot or a cooking oh. pot. And it's, yeah, flesh pot just sounds so gross. Yeah. I always thought it meant like prostitutes or something. Mm, yeah. But no, it's not that. It's just a big pot filled with meat. So this is the Israelites remembering how much better it was to be in bondage in Egypt than wandering around the God-forsaken desert with Moses for mm. 40 friggin' years. Regarding like semantic yeah. noise like that, um, back in the, I think, 60s or 70s, there was a big translation that went from KJV mm -hmm. to like a, a vernacular English. And some woman wrote into the Times, one of the newspapers, saying, if the English of the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. <laughs> Which uh, is the greatest compliment of the translators of the KJV. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, what this reveals to us then is that Stephen was incredibly poor while he was in Paris, right? He's poor now when he's in Dublin, too. Uh, but when he was in Paris, the family would send a few shillings here and there. But sometimes he would go days without eating. And when you're that hungry, lung stew starts to sound okay. Mm. He had planned to make some money teaching English. And he was even offered a full-time gig at a Berlitz language school. He turned it down, however, because it would interfere with his writing. So, um, would, <laughs> whatever uh, sympathy you might have for him for being so hungry and poor, like... it. This is all a crisis of his own making. Yes. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff a young man does. Yep. He's so eager to be an, an artist, but he's... Uh, Not realistic about the fact it's hard to write when you're hungry. Yeah. I, I think he just, he so badly just wants to have the life that someone like Yeats has. Mm -hmm. And Yeats had that in part because he, he was a talented writer. Not everything he wrote was great, but he wrote some goodies. But also because he came from a, a very well-to-do family and he had the money to follow whatever fancy was in his head and that's mm -hmm. absolutely what he did. And because Joyce was not from that social back background, it was a lot harder for right. him to make that happen. Or even like Oliver St. John Gogarty who would, you know, like, I'm going to live in a Martello Tower. It's my Amphalos. Oh. <laughs> All right, so uh, Bulmish... We mentioned this is the Boulevard Saint-Michel, which is kind of the main drag of the Latin Quarter. It uh, comes to a head at the River Seine, and there's a big statue of St. Michael, the archangel, sort of subduing the devil, and all the pigeons sit on and poop on his head. Um, it was one of the first things I saw when I was in Paris, and it is, like, burned in my memory for all times. right across the river from Notre Dame, and I remember taking a, the the Paris Metro from my dorm 
being the most jet lagged I'd, I'd ever been in my life. And just like standing there and just being like, is this real life? <laughs> anyway, um, Boulevard Saint Michel. Uh, he calls it by this slangy name that would probably be used by locals in Paris. It just makes him sound like, you know, I was really like this, you know, continental. He, he wants to sound like he was really cool and artsy and not like sad and eating I, long stew I, with I, cabinet. I, I think the old James Joyce knows exactly how pathetic the young James Joyce was. Yeah, I, I think mm. he's he's. Like you know. We'll have the fantasy of giving me a time machine so I can go back to my 21-year-old self and punch him a few times. <laughs> I think, my, and I include myself in this, I think a lot of us listening to this podcast were young Stevens at one point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot of me yeah. oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well. We got preemptively uh, a little, another email from our friend, friend of the show, Owen, who had some thoughts about this bull mish. So did you want to take over this here? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll just read Owen's bit here. Yeah. So um, Owen writes, In Ireland, a common form of greeting is to address someone as the bowled mick, for example. Uh, it's a derivative of the word bold, which in Ireland means naughty, bad or reprehensible. But when pronounced as bowled, it means great or terrific, which is exactly right. And I've heard that mm -hmm. used many times. Yeah. Right. And so mish kind of looks like mick, which mm -hmm. is a derogatory term for an Irish person. Uh, no, it could be. It depends on the use context. Uh, I wouldn't go all Twitter on it, but um, I look at the mix over there, you know, it depends who's saying it and the tone they're saying it in. Mm -hmm. It could I'm, easily be pejorative, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to. Like Patty can be an insult or affection, mm -hmm. depending on the inflection. Yeah. What this made me think of then when I was turning Owen's email over in my head is that Stephen, Stephen would be the, the, the bold Mick, right? He's mm -hmm. the this kind of scrappy Irish kid yeah. who's in Paris trying to... You know, kind of gotten too big for his britches, kind of showing off. He's bold in that way. So he's kind of imagining the begrudgery of people back in Ireland looking at him for his uh, worldliness. Mm -hmm. I, I th I've heard people use the word notions in this way. Would that be appropriate? Yeah. Saying someone has notions. Yeah. Mulligan, one of his closest friends, sees this in him, thinks he's, he's trying to, this deadless kid is trying to fly a little too close to the sun and just keeps his hand right on his ankle, pulling yeah. him back down. Right? He, needs, he needs grounding, yeah. Undercutting all of, well, there's two ways of looking at it. Like you look at it as like, oh, he needs to be brought back down to earth. He needs to find his grounding. Mm -hmm. But it could also be that like bucket of crabs yes. mentality yeah. where, you know, maybe Stephen can expand into a bigger universe, but he has someone pulling him back down. We could do a whole episode on begrudgery if oh. we haven't already. Isn't it? Didn't do we do? Do we do one? Are, are, you being, are you making a joke right now? No, no. Yeah, so we did a we whole did. episode on begrudgery at my your mind. Uh, insistence. Yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So and, uh, uh, no begrudgery. Like people talk about all the Irish characteristics, and then they all say, "Oh, they're drinking." No, it's begrudgery. That's one. The insecurity, the national mm -hmm. insecurity complex. All things are, exist in other countries, just in Ireland, dialed up to a much higher volume. I asked Dermot once what. He thinks every American person should know about Ireland. And he said, what American people don't realize is the amount of begrudgery and gothic horror there is <laughs> to being Irish. So next little bit. Yes, used to carry punch tickets to prove an alibi if they arrested you for murder somewhere. Justice. On the night of the 17th of February 1904, the prisoner was seen by two witnesses. Other fellow did it. Other me. Hat, tie, overcoat, nose. Lui, c'est moi. You seem to have enjoyed yourself. So this this part is always a little bit perplexing to me. I think it may be revealing a bit of paranoia on Stephen's part. 
if he's always carrying around his punch tickets to prove an alibi because he's so worried about being acu- falsely accused of mm-hmm. murder. Uh, you might notice the date, 1904. Uh, Stephen was in Dublin in 1904. James Joyce was certainly a ni- in Dublin in 1904, a mere few months before this. I believe it was Don Gifford looked through the Irish Times archives for this date, February 17th, 1904, and he found the sad case of Teresa McCarthy, who was killed around this time by an abusive husband, and it was also reported in the Irish Times that she had miscarried previously due to this abuse. So Gifford thinks it may be a reference to this because of the date and just kind of sticking in his mind because of the death of his own mother not too long before that. Oh, okay. The Louis Saint-Moi means I am him in French. It's kind of echoing l'état c'est moi, which was said by Louis XIV, one of the really rich kings of France. He said that I am the state. Mm -hmm. I think here Stephen is contrasting his own kind of lowly state that he's, he's worried of being perceived as a criminal or he's walking around eating his lungs stew and trying to uh, convince people that he's a, a bit more posh than he actually is. Mm. And, yeah, he sees himself in, you know, prisoner or someone like this and kind of contrasting it with the Sun King himself. Uh, he says, you seem to have enjoyed yourself. So I, I, I don't know that it's actually a bad memory. He's just being nostalgic while also being kind of depressed. So he's vacillating between, like, fond memories and mm-hmm. his own misery. Yeah. Let's see here. Next. Proudly walking. Whom were you trying to walk like? Forget. Dispossessed. Yeah, so there's not too much to say on this one. I just think this is kind of Stephen's imposter syndrome showing through, like... We get to see inside Stephen's head, so we get to see that he's kind of brilliant. He's poetic, and he has these big ideas, but he probably feels like other people know that he's the lung stew guy, mm. which is why he pretends so hard. This goes yeah. back, too, to when he was thinking about his uncle Richie Goulding, and he was telling the the boys at Clongos when he was young, like a young boy, that his uh, well, his uncles were a judge and I believe an admiral or something high up in the military. Mm-hmm. He knew from a very young age he had to lie about his class. Right. And that's just carried right through. So next bit, a little bit longer. With mother's money order, eight shillings, the banging door of the post office slammed in your face by the usher. Hunger toothache. Encore du minute. Le clock must get. Ferme. Hired dog. Shoot him the bloody bits with a bang shotgun. Bits, man, spattered walls, all brass buttons. Bits all cur clack in place, clack back. Oh, not hurt? Oh, that's all right. Shake hands. See what I meant? See? Oh, that's all right. Shake, shake. Oh, that's all only all right. This, this, this scene is, is Stephen trying to cash a money order at the post office. And it's written in this kind of... I'm trying to think how I want to describe this. This is... His, his, mem- his memory of being at the post office and thinking, oh, it's almost closed. And he gets there, oh, two more, you know, two minutes left, which is encore du minute. He looks at the clock, but the, the usher, I guess, who works there, slams the door in his face and says, ferme, which means closed mm-hmm. in French. And then this, this next part is Stephen thinking to himself, hired dog. And then he's imagining pulling out a big shotgun and shooting the guy with it, and then he's spattered all over the wall, his brass buttons all over. But then 
you say bits all, and then it says cr clack. That's him oh, the, that, opening the door, right. and he goes, oh, not her, oh, that's all right, shaking hands, see what I meant, it's okay, just come in, you know, he lets them in. Oh. <laughs> it's Stephen just in a fit of rage imagining himself Murder. destroying this postal clerk, so. Yeah, he's trying to cash this money order. Uh, the phrase hunger toothache, so Stephen, as well as James Joyce, had dental problems he couldn't afford to fix while he was in Paris in 1902. Uh, he attributed this to what he called inanition, which just means malnutrition because he's not really eating much. Yeah, Stephen wanting to shoot this guy, getting that angry. I mean, without that eight shillings, Stephen is going to starve another night. If he has to wait till the morning, that's a long, oh, hungry night for right, him. Right. right, He's saying hunger too thick to kind of right. underline that. Uh, the, the real cost of Stephen's lung stew kind of shows here that he was so desperate. Like, eight shillings isn't that much money. When James Joyce was in this period of his own life, his family, his mother in particular, was like selling furniture in her possessions to fund Stephen's trip abroad. And that is including after he was in Europe for a couple of weeks, he got back on the boat and came back for Christmas and then went back to Paris despite not having entrance into the university. Oh my God. It's an expensive trip in 1901. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they wouldn't have had money for it. He comes out of this not not really being a hero. Mm. You know, we're all, I think, reading this, we're happy that he was able to succeed and, and write Ulysses because I spend a lot of time reading and thinking about Ulysses. Mm -hmm. There was a, an article I read by a man named Joseph Heininger. It's linked in our, our show notes where he pointed out that this shows Stephen he, as what he described as a, a revolutionary of the trivial. So he was sort of an artistic dilettante whose political worldview is pretty underdeveloped, just like his art. Stephen outwardly is making himself look like this worldly young man, but in reality, his rage is just kind of un, unfocused. Right. He's not channeling it into his art in the way an artist might, um, but he's just, you know, getting really angry at this fussy postal clerk. In the end, he's very easily placated, too, mm. you know. He, he wants to pretend like he's raging against this unjust system, but we can see a lot of the injustice is of his own making. Right. And he's just kind of getting angry at, you know, some sort of, I would assume, probably low-wage worker. I don't know how great of a job being the postal clerk would have been in. 1902 in Paris. Probably an alright job. Alright job. Okay. Yeah. You know. Maybe lower middle class. Okay. Maybe sort of be a cut above the fellas in the coal mines. Anyway. Doing better than Stephen, that's for sure. Yes, yeah. I also feel like this is just a young man's rage at realizing increasingly how little power he has in his own life. Mm -hmm. And this incident is kind of now creeping back into his thoughts on Sandy Mount as a stand-in for the desperation brought on by his current poverty and by the fact that he's homeless. Like, he's sort of creeping up in these passages to the realization that he's not going back to the tower and that he has nowhere to live. That's all starting to, to percolate. Mm. Next. You were going to do wonders, what? Missionary to Europe after fiery Columbanus, Fiacra and Scotus on their creepy stools in heaven, spilt from their pint pots loud Latin laughing. Uge, uge. So he, these are saints, these names here, Columbanus, Fiacre, and Duns are all saints who earned renown by traveling to France from Ireland, 
Although Dunscotus is claimed by Ireland, Scotland, and England. So, you know, he, uh, he's very popular. Columbanus and Fiacra are both Irish. Columbanus, we wrote, he, I believe, was 5th or 6th century, and he went to France and set up a bunch of Celtic-style monasteries, like the, the type of Catholicism practiced in places like, at that time, Ireland and Scotland, which were a little less of a hard border between those than there would be nowadays in people's minds. The, the kind of Catholicism there was different than what they were doing in France. He went to France and set up several monasteries and was, they were some of the, I think, biggest at that time. Yeah. He's pretty well known. Fiacre did a, a, a similar thing. And, oh, Columbanus is the patron saint of motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And Fiacre is a bunch of things. I believe like gardeners and herbalism. And also he he is the patron saint you pray to if you have hemorrhoids or venereal disease. Oh, okay. So anyway, all you need to know is this is goes back to what Stephen was saying before when he's thinking, oh, cousin Stephen, you will never be a saint. You know, this is, it's not just that he isn't, that he's he's kind of corrupt and thinking about fubsy widows in Serpentine Avenue. It's also that he he won't reach this level of sainthood of of traveling abroad and and doing great things and this the sort of more high minded aspect of sainthood. He he won't have that scholarly aspect of sainthood under his belt either. Right. He's he's kind of a, a a nothing and a nobody and he doesn't like it so much. And he's imagining all these guys sitting up on their little stools in, in heaven, la- uh, mocking him in Latin. Uge means applause. Mm-hmm. Oh, good job, Stephen. Wow. You're just like us. All right. Next. Pretending to speak broken English as you dragged your valise, porter threepence, across the slimy pier at New Haven. Comment? So... a. Upon returning to Dublin, so the ferries don't go straight from Paris to Dublin. You have to go up through Belgium and I think across through England. And he gets there to Belgium and he was just penniless. So this is starting to talk about his return back to Dublin. Not necessarily in chronological order, but as we know, Joyce and Stephen both had to go back to Dublin because his mother was sick. And he, he was so broke at this crossing that he pretended not to speak English so that he could avoid tipping the porter. Hmm. It's just like, what? Like in French? Like, yeah, I don't really know what, uh, I don't really know what you're saying. Let's see here. Rich booty you brought back. Le tutu, five tattered numbers of pantalon blanc et culotte rouge. So all he's bringing back with him are a couple copies of these French pornographic magazines. Uh, Rich booty you brought back, right? So he's like St. Columbanus traveling across the sea to find his fortune in France. And all he's coming back with is some tattered copies of porn. Dirty postcards. Yeah. I did find a cover image of one of the, I believe, Coulotte Rouge. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, I think, Pantalon Blanc et Coulotte Rouge. Because it's like white pants, but like in the, the Irish way of saying pants. Mm-hmm. And then culotte are like little shorts. Right. Anyway, I, I have a, a cover image for one of those we'll put in the episode notes. It's you see like, ankles? Do the show you ankles? see ankles, yeah. That's good. Uh, you see pantalon blanc et culotte rouge. Yeah. yeah so white and red panties. Uh, a blue French telegram. Curiosity to show. Mother dying, come home father. 
So this phrase is was the entire content of the telegram that Stephen received from his father, Simon, to tell him to come home because of his mother's terminal illness. And legend has it, this is also what Joyce received. I was reading about this a bit more recently since I wrote our blog post. And I went back through my notes, and this story is told in both Elman's biography and Stanislaus Joyce's biography of his brother called My Brother's Keeper, that he received a telegram in Paris saying that his mother was dying and he needed to come home. But I saw something, I think just today, saying like that this this telegram is never, there's no hard evidence of this, but I, I don't know if that matters or not. No. Okay. His mother is very sick. Uh, we know she's going to die. And so Joyce slash Stephen needed to make the crossing back to Ireland immediately, but of course he had no money, right? He was ready to blow some guy's head off over eight shillings, hypothetically. Stanislaus tells a story about how in the middle of the night, uh, James Joyce showed up at the flat of a wealthy wine merchant, uh, Monsieur Deuce, who he had been tutoring in English, and showed him the telegram and was able to borrow the fair money to go back to Ireland. And in Stanislaus's account, he's quick to point out that his brother made sure Monsieur Deuce was paid back in full. So he didn't just take his money and yeah. run. Now, here's a little bit of Ulysses publishing controversy. So we always say at the top of our podcast that we're using the 1990 Vintage International Edition. That is significant because that edition uses the original text that was published in, I believe, 1922. Uh, Ulysses has been through a lot of edits and rewrites, not rewrites, but just edits over its, its time. And some of these are small and some of these are big. So in 1984, a new edition of Ulysses came out that was edited by a man named Walter Gabler, maybe Gabler, I'm not sure how to say his name. I like Gabler, so I'm saying that. And Gabler made some really big edits. It wasn't just, oh, this, you know, this word is spelled wrong. Or, um, you know, we forgot a, a comma. He made some really, really big ones, some of which we'll, we'll talk about towards the end of the Proteus episode and, and future podcast episodes. One change he made is that when it says, mother come home, mother dying, come home, father, he changed it to another with an N. Now, the reason he did this is that there is a manuscript held by the Rosenbach Foundation in Philadelphia, I want to say, which is written in Joyce's own hand, and he wrote Nother, N-O-T-H-E-R. So one thing when I read my edition that says Mother, which is what it originally said, I've always been kind of perplexed by the phrase curiosity to show because it's not clear what the curiosity would be in Mother come, Dying, Come Home, Father. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, it's punctuated weird, but it was a tele telegraph or telegram message, like you were saying, it's, uh, hmm. you know. Keep the, it short. Yeah, yeah. But if it said another, like if his father had dashed this off so carelessly that it was misspelled hmm. as another, that would be a curiosity, right? Richard Elman, for his part, approved of this change. I am, I am always a little on the fence about Gabler's edition because... I think he, he went and changed stuff around without being able to consult with the publishers or Joyce himself because it was 1984, you know? Mm -hmm. It's long after it had been written. But in the, the manuscript, it does pretty clearly say another. So if you're wondering why your edition says one or the other, 
this is why, because you either have the pre-1984 text like me, or you have the post-1984 text like many of you others. People ask me every so often on social media and in email about which edition I'm using. And someone um, was asking me about this saying, oh, I, I thought you used the, the Gabler edition. My book is the, the, the original text. Although I do scan an online copy that is the Gabler edition because I want to talk about everything. So when there's a discrepancy like this, I don't want to miss it. Mm. But my book says mother. Your book might say another. I think Joyce intended it to say another and uh, because it looked like something that could easily just be a typographical error, it got changed by the printers. Mm. So, I, and I, that's why Richard Elman yeah. improved in the change. But apparently, I, George Orwell, at the end of his life when he was writing mm -hmm. 1984, he, he, was, he had to do all the proofreading himself and all the typing or whatever because mm -hmm. He couldn't just hand it off because there were so many neologisms. He mm -hmm. was terrified that people would autocorrect mm -hmm. and assume he made a typo. And he was dying at the time. Yeah. It was the last thing he needed yeah. to have to like sacrifice his time to, but he had to. Yeah, there are plenty of little bits in Ulysses you can point to where Joyce purposely wrote something weird and uh, really had to like put his foot mm. down to make yes. sure. Like in the next chapter, there's I, I think Bloom is looking in the band of his hat and it's rubbed away. And the, the text says his high quality ha. There's no T because mm. the T is rubbed away. Yeah. But it looks like a typo. Yeah. There's another part where it says Ness yo, like yes, no, but kind of swapped around. Right. And that was another one too where they're like, no, 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 you can't change that. Yeah. That's yeah. what it's supposed to say. So I think this another mother thing is probably like that. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the last little bit here. The aunt thinks you killed your mother. That's why she won't. Then here's a health to Mulligan's aunt, and I'll tell you the reason why. She always kept things decent in the Hannigan family. All right, so this is a, a flashback to Stephen's conversation with Mulligan that morning, uh, back on page five in my book. Uh, you want to read that quote? The aunt thinks you killed your mother, he said. That's why she won't let me have anything to do with you. Okay, and the lyrics there are a slight reworking of the lyrics to a song called Matt or Matthew Hannigan's aunt. Uh, by per, by a songwriter called Percy French. We're going to try to put a little bit of that recording in here. You can hear it on YouTube. It'll be linked in our show notes. And it's also linked in the blog post version of this, which is called Latin Quarter Hat. You can find on bloomsandbarnacles.com. So we'll, uh, I think what we'll do is we'll wrap up the episode here and then we'll we'll play you out with that verse yeah. from the song. And it's a recording by some by a guy named Des Kyo. I don't. I've never heard of him before. I found this on YouTube. But all right. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on your head? No, no, that's it. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll see y'all in two weeks. See you then. Bye. 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 down the stairs. So here's a help to Hannigan's aunt. I tell you the reason why. She always done things decent in the Hannigan family. A platter and can for every man. What more do the quality want? Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. 
The PayPal donate button is at the upper right hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.